space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Welcome to the Great Star Trek Movie Review, Film 5, Star Trek The Final Frontier. Welcome to the next episode in our Star Trek film series, idea courtesy of Darren, thank you Darren, which will be discussed with the usual team of Graham, Jeff and Neil. Hi Darren, how are you doing? I'm going well, thank you. And in advance of this, just let me apologise for having asked you all to watch this film again. <laughs> <laughs> and there we are the game's been given away <laughs> no i'm still holding out for him to buy me a pint for watching this but, <laughs> but before we start a big big shout out to the star trek appreciation society on facebook and messenger the place to go for your star trek chats and updates find them at star trek 5 directors cut they've been very yeah. helpful to me and my research thank you guys after the high of the one with the whales, we come crashing down with William Shatner's directorial efforts, Star Trek, The Final Frontier from 1989. In this one, the Enterprise is taken over by Spock's half-brother, who of course has been spoken of many times in the series <laughs> up to this point. <laughs> Just like his sister <laughs> in the latest TV show, yeah. And then together they set off to find God. Yes, you hear that right, God. In fact, there's even for a credit for him at the end. And yes, you heard that right, him. With a plot as outlandish as that, it's not surprising that this won the Best Film Award at the Razzies in 1990. <laughs> so my first question, I'll start with you, Darren. Does the film deserve its reputation? Yes, absolutely. The thing is that the Star Trek franchise by now had really built up its own style. It had built up so much goodwill with audiences, you know, but it was coming off Star Trek 4, which was like, you know, really well received by Trek fans and, and non-Trek fans. And it managed to sort of incorporate the fact that these characters were getting on a bit. And it had made these character arcs and, and, and really sort of brought Star Trek into the, uh, you know, into the 80s. And this one totally undid all of that good work. It, it took it back to what people's um, stereotype prejudices were against Star Trek. It looked cheap. It was corny. It was badly made. It, it was it was really sort of cringeworthy. It felt like a, a TV movie. It didn't look good. The good thing about Star Trek was it, it looked sort of bright and, and colourful and, and everything. This looked like really dour in places. It had a really awful concept there were some really embarrassing moments as well aside from the, the three-breasted um, cat lady which you could say was a gag <laughs> things like the first time the horses come up and they've got like the little horns like super glued on them to make them look like you're alien it, it just looked the whole thing was just so tacky and and i know that me and jeff have disagreed about the special effects in, in these films, because I, I like them. Je Jeff generally doesn't. In this one, there's, there's no excuse. They're, they're, they're cheap. They're awful. They're two-dimensional. You know, there's no depth to them or anything. At least in the other films, the camera would pan around them so you had some sub substance. In this, it's just like one shot of a ship going off into the distance. It was a sort of disappointment and embarrassment to, to Star Trek, I think, this one. Follow that. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I did notice in the middle of that, Darren said about horns and having to glue it on, so it naturally comes to you now, Neil. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just so slow, wasn't it? It's like a 40-minute TV programme stretched out to an hour and 45 minutes. It was absolutely dreadful. And, and the Wizard of Oz ending. What the <laughs> bloody hell was that about? How stupid. I did read a couple of critics. Roger Ebert said the uh, row, row, row your boat bit at the beginning nearly sunk the series. Merrily, 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 gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 merrily. Come on, spark. And it's the most awkward scene he's seen for a very long time. Absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, it it was terrible, wasn't it? Graham? Oh, it's a masterpiece, Jeff. I would put it right up there. (laughs) It's down now, Graham. Just kick it. Uh, I thought, no, the the arrogance of the foolish Vulcan, the god deception, you know. (laughs) It was terrible. And I was really upset because I'd... I'd so enjoyed the last one. And the problem is this was released in July 1989. My first daughter was four months old, so I don't remember even going to the cinema. In fact, I don't remember anything from 1989. I was so sleep-deprived. So when I sat down to watch it, I thought, ah, right, we've come off the back of four. Here we go. I haven't seen this before. Let's go. And, oh, boy, what a kick in the face this was. It was shocking. And it was just so bad, you know. Let's go down to Paradise City, where the grass is green and the girls are pretty. <laughs> pretty yeah, yeah, I thought of that too. <laughs> so did I. Just like, <laughs> what the hell? And then the, what was it? Sharkari. I thought, oh, Shatner, isn't it? Isn't it, this his own planet or something? Yeah. Yeah. And then I, it was just. Can I jump in on go that? On, bit? Sorry, because uh, I know a little bit of trivia yeah. out there. Shakari was actually um, Sean Connery. That was it. Is based on because <laughs> originally the the guy they wanted for a cyborg was Sean Connery, so they they named the, the show oh, the, the, that planet was based. You know, so that's where that came from. But but yeah, oh, oh good grief! And it was his superpower was so terrible. Anyway, you know, a cyborg's superpower was shocking. All of their, you know, their most horrible moments in their life when McCoy turns into Harold Shipman. You know, I just thought it was sh- <laughs> ah. shockingly bad. Shockingly bad. <laughs> D- Darren is so right. What was wrong with the colour? Honestly, it looked yes, like it the was. inside of a Klingon ship the whole time. And then when you went in the Klingon ship, that was quite bright and airy. <laughs> but, uh, no, they really, really dropped the ball on this one. And it was such a come down from the one with the whales. <laughs> yeah, the one with the whales. Uh, yeah. Right. Okay. Well, um, that's Star Trek Five. We'll see you next time on Star Trek Six. Seriously, <laughs> 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 we do have a lot more to go through, and there are some good points. Stay with us, please, guys. Um, for for me, yeah. I've, I mean, Darren summed it up perfectly as to to what the failings are with this. But I have a personal grudge against it because at that point in time. Me and my family were preparing to move from Plymouth to Cheltenham and we were in the middle of packing and I got a special pass to go out and watch this, leaving my Ooh. wife at home with two young, uh, two young children. Yeah, I was allowed out. 
and uh, I was so disappointed. There are moments in the film when I first saw it I, I, I was really impressed with. I would say that the director's cut is better than this, uh, much better than this. But for the purposes of this exercise, I went back and watched the cinema version again. And if it comes to a choice of watching this again and naming my head to a coffee table, I'm not going to rush into it. <laughs> we can help with that. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you would. I've, I've got some nails. Yeah. I've got an hammer. Yeah, you're getting ready for Easter, eh, Graham? Um, <laughs> yeah. So, the sad thing, and, and I think the biggest, one of the biggest disappointments I think we all had is you go into this, and as you said, Graham, you come off the back of the biggest hit of the movie series, the most fun, financially rewarding, the critics were with it, it had Oscar nominations, and Next Generation was kicking off around this time, so everything was in its favour. So, Darren, over to you. How could they get the planning of this so wrong? When this came out, Next Generation had just had its um, second uh, season. It's fair to say that Next Generation wasn't exactly a, a great success right from the start. Uh, financially, it was making a, a lot of money, you know, in sort of advertising wise. But it wasn't until the third season, really. So the second season was getting there. For the first season, is absolutely horrible. You, you know, it's just sort of, it, it doesn't work at all. It, it looks bad. You know, the, the first season was hardly any good episode. It wasn't until the third season where fans started to embrace it. There was a lot of people who were really sort of negative and, and were still sort of clinging to the, the, the old crew. So, so in a way, this probably could have capitalized on that by sort of saying, like, you know, these are the, one, these are the guys that you love and everything. You've got to go to the guy who was in charge and, and Matt Shatner. He proved to be the wrong person. I mean, what what actually happened is somebody pointed out to him, and there's various reports of who it is. But some say that it was actually Nimoy that pointed out to him that he had a clause in his contract that meant he matched anything that Leonard Nimoy got, you know, in, in terms of wages, points, that sort of thing. But it was pointed out to him that it, technically in this clause, because Leonard Nimoy had directed a Star Trek film, that Shatner could demand the same. And, and, and so he did. He, he pulled that card he sort of you know he had that that if they wanted to make him another star trek film he wanted like to direct and have control over the story and that's how he was chosen it wasn't that anyone thought that he was going to be good in it it was just sort of you know the clause that they needed to get him back in i mean you, you talk about you know what went wrong the concept is is awful it's, I, I remember the first time that I heard about this, and it was I was listening to the radio, and I was the show I was listening to was Steve Wright in the afternoon, and the, he would every so often have these little like sort of showbiz news segments, and on that he announced that the uh, the story had been announced for the new Star Trek film, and that the story was going to be that the Enterprise crew beam into heaven and meet God. Now. Obviously, that's not what happened. I remember even as a Star Trek fan hearing that and just sort of like sinking, I thought, oh, this sounds terrible. Because bringing any sort of search for God into it, it just doesn't work because there'd never been any talk about religion or God or any of those concepts in Star Trek before. The, the whole concept of the um, human race in, in Gene Roddenberry's idea was that by now they had evolved so they didn't have divisions over wealth or countries or nationality or thing. And you could also put religion into that. So it can't be this whole Excuse thing about... Me, Darren, just to say, wasn't there a banned episode from the original series which spoke about some guy having godlike powers? 
there's actually a few of those. It was banned in the UK, sorry. That I did not know about. I, I, know, I know, I know, I probably know the episode that you're talking about, but I, I don't, I didn't know that anything was ever banned for that reason. We'll come to that a, a little bit later and why we got, so we actually got quite a few storylines that sort of were like critiques or satirizing religion in a way. You know, so it did actually crop up in, in the TV series, uh, you know, the theme of godlike figures. But the actual, the talk of like a Christian god never came up. You, you never saw Christians or anything like that, or, you know, in, in existing in the Star Trek um, universe at this point. And I think it was just a sort of, you know, a, a, a really bad, tacky sounding concept. And if you were to, to hear that concept, you know, it, it would sort of... Even if you love Star Trek Four, I don't think that, that I think just that concept alone was was enough to basically put you off. Okay, well, let's hand over to the person that would be our pastor on the Enterprise for his view on when he first heard about God in this. Graham, uh, right, pass the God question to the resident atheist. That's no, a no, good no, one. No. Thanks, it's not, we'll talk about God, the God thing in more detail, <laughs> but. You know, there must have been a point where you found out, right, okay, this is Star Trek and they're going to meet God. My view at the time was, and I, I'm sure I read it in, in one of the film magazines at the time, and I remember thinking, oh, no, they've got this wrong. Actually, I was in denial immediately. I just thought, no, they wouldn't do that because as exactly as Darren said, always in the TV show, they were in evolved uh, species humanity had evolved to the point where there were very few divisions between them and they were moving out into the cosmos to fulfill our destiny and you know going back to ancient religions and uh, that sort of thing just didn't seem a good idea to me but then I found out that Shatner was writing it and I thought oh well that's just reinforced all my prejudices there we go what about you, Neil? Did you have any thoughts before you saw it? Or... Nope. No, I didn't no, think so. No, I basically didn't read anything. Or The first time I've seen it was actually saw it today. I got up early, watched it, so it was fresh in my mind. I wish I hadn't. And, um, <laughs> I should have had a few weeks to forget it. Uh, but, yes, I, I just came in blind to it. And the stupid thing is that when you're watching it, that – they say, oh, they're, they, they're going to find God, and you know it's not going to be. It's the stupid bit where they go, they go. well, it's obviously not. I suppose we'd better find out what it is. It's some being that's trapped. Stupid yeah. story. So let's talk a bit about this, this script. Yet again, and this is becoming my gripe with all of these films now, they keep bringing in novice screenwriters. They're not bringing in people you know, versed in the industry or versed in science fiction. So you've got David Lowry this time. Now, admittedly, he had a science fiction film to his name, Dreamscape with Dennis Quaid, which, if you haven't seen it, has some really, really good ideas in it. But, you know, he's gone on from Star Trek and he's shown he's a great action director. You've got films like that I really like, like Money Train and Passenger 57, that, uh, okay, they star Wesley Snipes, you can't have everything. You know, they really rattle along at a fair pace. So I guess my question is, and I'll start with you, Graham, was he the wrong man or was he hampered in trying to do a sci-fi action film when he clearly can do action? He was at the start of his career and they give him a not only a big blockbuster, but he's coming off the back of one of the most successful of the blockbuster series. 
and they, they'd had an incredible run. I mean, they had Rafa Khan, which was hugely well received and really enjoyed. They had a bit of a dip with uh, the third one, the search for Spark, but then they picked it up again in the fourth, and they, he just really dropped the ball on this. And I, I, I lay all the blame on this on him and Shatner. I think it was just, and Shatner's not a great writer either. either. I've read, you know, Spectre and The Return and Dark Victory and Preserve and uh, God forgive me, (laughs) Tech War as well. And they're all very, very amateurish uh, books. So he's not a great writer, I don't think. And um, I don't think he was, he was up to this. I personally don't think you can put so much blame on David Lowry because the actual, the whole story came from Shatner. You know, David Lowry had to basically ah, work with... Thank you. Thank you. Work, I couldn't find that bit of information. Yeah. Right. He, he His inspiration for the film was the, uh, the televangelists of the 80s. If you're not aware of these, these were these religious people that would go on TV they they would basically have these like long speeches about God and everything. And then at the end of it, they would ask telephone in and make donations. And they made tons and tons. This thing was really successful. They made tons of money. They bought massive mansions and, and what have you. They, had, you know, they got millions of people after them. Blessed him with silver and gold. How many of you like silver and gold? Amen. Those of you that don't, you're in the wrong church. And these people were all frauds because a lot of them would be scandals about sort of like them going with sort of prostitutes and things or tax embezzlements. And he wanted to base a film about this sort of, you know, this sort of scam. But his actual concept was that one of these figures would basically be convinced uh, where, that he'd found the hiding place of God and that they would get there. But when they got there, it was actually Satan. And so the crew would find themselves trapped in um, hell and Kirk would be the one who would save the rest of the crew. And you have this grand idea of like angels and demons battling each other. You have this like big, massive concept. The whole sort of story comes from him. And it was actually Harv Bennett and also Lowry who tried to steer the story away from some of Shatner's elements. They tried, you know, because their argument was that because this is a science fiction film and, and God, you know, you can't really prove the existence of God or anything. We, we sort of, you know, they tried to get him away from that and Shatner would keep sort of pulling it back to, to the God thing and there was a bit of compromise. But the whole idea comes from Shatner. The script wasn't helped by the fact that the um, there was a writer's strike that came up um, in the middle of it. So during that time, he couldn't do any work on it at all. And so there was quite a rushed element. But even giving Lowry that benefit of a doubt, there's still a lot of storyline stuff in there. So, for example, halfway through the movie, you find out about this place called The Great Barrier, which is the centre of the universe. And it just comes out of nowhere. I mean, you know, could you not have mm. done a scene early on in the film where you actually establish what this great barrier is and show sort of, you know, you know how it relates to the Star Trek universe and show these ships which are trying to get into it? Again, late on, uh, Cybok uh, announces that he's been getting these visions from God, which is actually this like aliens, you know, trying to call him forward. And he just says it. I mean, again, could you not have had some sort of scenes early on where he, where you show what these visions are, so you're getting a build up of it? But things just like are just thrown at, at the audience constantly with no build, mm. with no sort of like you know natural progression. So I, I think it is badly written. I, I don't think you can blame David Lowry for the story, but. I think 
the rewrites, the struggles with Shatner and, and everything, all, all these all these things. I, I think there's a lot of blame to go around, but you, you've got to go with, you know, the you know the guy who came up with the story and the premise, and that is Shatner. The only thing I would add to that, and that, and, and what you said, Darren, worries me even more now, is bringing in these novice screenwriters. And as you said, and I fully support and agree with what you're saying about William Shatner, but it seems they're bringing in these novice screenwriters so they can almost bully them into what they want rather than let you know, fresh and original ideas come through. Apparently Shatner was trying to get Eric Lust- Lustbader, uh, if I pronounce that right, who uh, was a well-known sci-fi established writer, uh, but he wanted uh, a million to do this, so it was quite out of a budget range. But I think the thing is, go you know, the common thing throughout these films is that the um, you know the storyline it is it is a fluid, ongoing, creative process. It's not just one you know top writer's vision coming in there. And I think you know for a writer who wants to get his his work out there, you know, top writers don't want their work messed with. They want a certain sense of control having to sort of conform to what the sort of you know what the, the cast would be wanting what the actual the studio would be wanting and being very protective of the of their property you can understand why they may not have been able or even wanted to get the top writers for these things you've already summed up part of the problem is you've got you know one person with with a god complex sorry guys on one side saying this is what we're going to do then you got people on the other side trying to calm him down and, and bring it to a more science fiction base and right in the middle of this you throw a writer hmm. that's terrific it, it does sound like the definition of development hell doesn't yes. it yeah, yeah. Um, and when you're making a big budget science fiction film it's not something you want to play around with no graham over to you yeah um so they've managed once again to get all the cast to come back, although I do understand that George Sakai was reluctant. Darren, how did they all respond to the fact that Shatner was starring and directing? Uh, I mean, I've not found any, any sort of specific interviews or anything that, that suggests that. A, a, a lot of them have since thrown this um, film un, under the bus. You know, <laughs> because it just sort of it is indefensible. But just knowing what the Star Trek, you know, what the relationship was with Shatner. I mean, if you ever watch Galaxy Quest and that relationship that they have with with the sort of with the main actor on that series, that's pretty much like what it was like, you know, for, for a lot of the crew. You know, they, they did you know they felt Shatner had an ego. They, they you know they they didn't get on with him. And I, I can imagine that they would be in horror that, that this guy who was constantly be having his ego in the TV series. I mean those things like for example any group scene, Shatner always had to be at the front of it. And there's also a story that um, Hal, Hal and Allison told how one time he presented a script to Shatner. And then when I was sat there, Shatner went through it twice and was counting something. And it turned out he was counting the lines that he had and the lines that Lennon Nimoy had in the script. So so oh, that good. sort of thing, you can imagine <laughs> that they were probably being absolutely mortified to learn that Shatner was now in charge of everything. I can imagine that they were not best pleased. Out of the top three, I don't think this film does any of the others any favours whatsoever. When you consider that they've been built up into basically being a crew in Star Trek Four, to this one where they're relegated to be also almost being like the villains, 
I, I can imagine that this was a, um, an awful experience for all concerned. Do you think as well that Shatner's ego was stoked because he had another hit series in the 80s being TJ Hooker? Probably. The, the, the Star Trek actors at this time were, were had a re- revitalised the, their fame based on the um, on the convention circuit. You can imagine that that, that Shatner, you know, when he's going out there with adoring fans, or what I'm saying, and, and I think he he has since, if you see, he's 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 learned to basically take the Mickey out of himself a, a bit better. But then this might have been like the sobering experience that he that he needed. Is it true though that um, that the actual cast insisted on rewrites to the script Shatner had co-created? Two of them had clauses, being um, Lennon Nimoy and Defrost. Kelly, because the the original story was that the entire Enterprise crew was uh, became under the thrall of Cyborg, including McCoy and and Spock, and that he, he was the only one who, who managed to resist. And so Spock and McCoy were leading the um you know the hunt for for Kirk as it was. Kirk was basically like in a diehard situation where he's hiding in the in the ship and everything, and. Uh, Kelly and uh, Nimoy, they were adamant that their characters would not act like that. They said there's no way that they would ever betray Kirk. So they had to rewrite the story so that they resisted the temptation and that they stayed true. It is a primitive form of communication known as Morse code. You're right. I'm on a lot of practice. Uh, That's an S. A T. A. N. uh, D. End of word. Stand. New word. B. A. Um, C. K. Back. Stand back. Stand Stand back! back. (laughs) What are you standing around for? Do you not know a jailbreak when you see one? William Shatner actually admitted that even though he tried to convince them otherwise, he did admit that if he'd been asked to do the same thing with his character, that his character turned on the others, that there's no way he would have done it because it was a betrayal of, of them. But for the rest of the actors, I, um, it's a shame that they couldn't have, have a, a little bit more pull as well, because, they, like I said, they, they get short shift in this, in this film, but they turn on Kirk, they turn traitor, because the, the thing about Cyborg is it's, it's established that even though he affects their minds, he's not brainwashing them. They're joining him on their own free will. And they don't even get like a moment towards the end where the characters have their redemption, where they either turn on Cyborg or prove their allegiance for Kirk again. It just sort of ends. And and I think this is a really slap in the face to, to their characters, that they have no big moment where they save the, their characters or anything. It really relegates them back to being almost, you know, glorified extras on, on the show, to be honest. Uh, thank you for the diehard image. I've now see Kirk running through with a vest and barefoot, shouting "Yippee Kaye" at Spock every now and again. <laughs> yes, but he would have done it bravely, and there would have been long shots with extra <laughs> just on Shatner. Yeah, like like through the rest of the movie. Right. Okay. Let Let's try and pull this to some sort of conclusion on Shatner. Well, Shatner's direction. To me, it just showed his TV background and he was way out of his depth directing a motion picture. Darren, what do you think? I, I mean, well, you, you never know until someone gets that opportunity because there, there are many 
people start in, in television directing. And then when they make the transition to film, you know, do, do re- really well. I mean, the, the one example of this comes from Star Trek itself, where Jonathan Frakes was directing uh, Next Generation episodes and then got a, um, a shot to uh, direct uh, First Contact. And, and for me, he knocked that one out of the park. Mm. You know, so so it's what it, what it comes down to is some people have the talent and the knack, and and some don't. And and Shatner, just by watching this film, it's really badly put together. I mean, there, there are, I have to say there are some interesting things that he he does. There's a few scenes where he really you know uses the space on the sets really well. But there's this there's like a tracking shot on the bridge. It happens a few times where it it goes like in a circle from character to character. Normally, the um, the filming of the bridge used to be very sort of static. It was like from the angle of the view screen, whereas this one, it gives a lot more depth to it. And there's also a scene where the shuttle, when it first arrives on the Enterprise, it, it follows the crew getting off the shuttle, then switches over to Scotty coming in the direction, and then it sort of follows them into a lift. So it's, it's a nice, well-done well, well shot. So there are some sort of nice ideas, and there's some like frame, scenes which are framed quite well. But doing that for odd scenes doesn't make the entire film you've got to have a sort of you know a consistency there and and some of the scenes are awful i mean the, the scene where one minute there's a siege outside and then kirk walks into a into the into the, the bar by himself and it's like this like weird can ramble foot from above for no reason it just looks really shoddy and he has this fight with the cat lady where you can't see anything going on and it does look very tv-ish and, and uninspiring in, in fact he actually just you know, the, the story goes that uh, in one of the, when we were filming the outdoor scenes, when we were doing the whole siege at night, that Shatner absolutely lost it. Uh, if things weren't going his his way, he hated how the, the extras were, were at behaving and acting on, on camera. And he just went on this massive, massive tirade and, and had to be calmed down. It's obviously didn't have the temperament or, or probably the respect of people to sort of, you know, to be a director. When I was re-watching it, the, the first scene, it's the guy in the desert who looks into the distance and he sees his horse running towards him, which is quite a nice shot, but it keeps going back and forth between the two. And all it, I It's no of, Lawrence of Arabia, is it? Well, but not... it just reminded me of that scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Exactly. <laughs> when, when, exactly. Um, yeah, He's when, running uh, up to the castle. Yeah, and it keeps going. Yes. And it just, fit, it just felt like that. It yeah. did occur to me. I thought, what the hell? What is that? Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. See, yeah. What, what scares me is how our minds work. You lot have all gone to Monty Python. I went to Sergio Leone in the way he used to cut shots like that. Oh, yeah. Yes, but that would make Shatner a good director. No, it wouldn't. Obviously it, it not going for that no, line. No, 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 it wouldn't make him a good director. He would know where to go to to try and copy shots. I, yeah. I agree with Darren that the TV background here, because he directed, I think, six, seven episodes of TJ Hooker, was a bit different from directing a 50 million dollar movie mm, it um, definitely looked tv didn't it j- yeah. j- just just one last thing i just want to add on that more things to blaming on because we talked a little bit about the, the look of the film how bland and, and dark it is and those those outfits the, the cream color outfits look awful all of that came from shatner as well he chose the the people who made the sets he chose the fashion things and everything because he apparently wanted to make this a darker movie and it literally was that in terms of how it looks. So everything about it, how bad it looks, it all comes from Shannon. He liked what he was seeing. I mean, that scene at the start as well, with when he's climbing the mountain, it goes on forever before we so, even see uh, Shannon. Long shots on, on God, Shatner. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah. Endless. I mean, in a way, because he was, you know, moving up from TV to, to uh, direction on a big budget movie, he could have done with a co-director, but his ego yes. would never have allowed that. Okay. Um, right. Let's give Mr. Shatner a little pause at the moment, although I'm sure we'll come <laughs> back to him. And let's talk a little more about the plot. Now, there's a lot of religious idealism within this film. Darren, you've already said that, you know, the uh, original ideas were to to look at the corruption of TV evangelists in America in the 80s. But then you've got the cyborg character who essentially is Christ and he's gathering his disciples to see God. I mean, why did they have this fixation on bringing religion into this Star Trek when it had never been touched on in any of the other films and virtually not in the TV series at all? I honestly have no idea. I'm baffled. And, and all, all good wisdom seems to be that people were trying to take it away from you know the, the whole god element i mean i mean one, one of the things that the uh, you know the whole idea of uh, of shakari and being like the, the fountain of all knowledge what was was an attempt to sort was something that shatner when he saw this rewrite what was unhappy about but again it was an attempt to basically sort of take his concept and just make it a little more sci-fi and, and less religious but he kept pushing pushing back and i i've no idea what his if he wanted to basically make this a, a a spiritually daring film or something. I, I've, I've, I've absolutely no idea. Okay, so we'll go to our um, religious <laughs> advisor on the show, Graham. <laughs> well, I think Christians must have been furious when they mm. saw this, if they saw it. It's really demeaning. There is one line that Cybox says where he says, "You know, modern dogma tells us this place is a myth, a fantasy concocted by pagans." Okay, that's a bit on the nose. Not as on the nose as having the um, wheel from a sailing ship in the uh, captain's lounge, but we won't go into that. <laughs> that <was laughs> terrible as well. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm with Darren, baffled and confused, and I thought, this is just rubbish. This is just... And what I couldn't get over was, at the same time as this was coming out, 1989, the following year... The Borg appeared on Star Trek Next Generation. You know, they had that great uh, double episode finale. Are they um, religious as well? No, I'm just saying that that's the incredible quality of Star Trek. And this was just such a terrible... In the same sort of 18-month period, we had the Borg and we had this mess. And it's just a complete juxtaposition and yeah bringing religion into star trek is never going to work okay you said baffled and confused there and at that it's a good time to go to neil <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good very clever um yeah i mean how did they get the money for it what's the plot we're going to yeah. go the biggest star trek ever we're going to find god I mean, right. who gives money for that yeah but you don't ask questions like that when you're dealing with a franchise you're doing uh, another star trek film here's the money Okay, yeah, yeah, reasonable, reasonable. Um, yeah, absolutely baffled. What the earth were they playing at? Yeah. I mean, the the question I don't know, and I haven't, I deliberately haven't thrown this open, is I don't think anybody here knows. Obviously, uh, William Shatner himself is Jewish, and I'm curious to see, you know, they're bringing in a Christ-like figure, they're looking at TV evangelism, but what elements of Judaism came into this film? Judaism I mean, has a Judaism, God. Thank you. 
yeah so i i'm curious as uh, to that as well but we can't answer that here. Anybody listening can answer that. Please let us know. I'd be fascinated. Yeah, yeah. That would be interesting. Uh, but the whole concept of God on screen, I remember when this film came out, there was most of the critics picked up on the fact that God had a credit. Yeah. God <laughs> has played by, and yeah. that had never been done before. We've said that Star Trek doesn't really go into religion. It has tapped upon this thing of God every now and again. And I remember the story of Harlan Ellison when he did his pitch of Star Trek, the motion picture. And this is in uh, one of Stephen King's pieces uh, about Star Trek, which is fascinating. So I'm assuming this is true, but if it's not, don't sue us. But basically Harlan Ellison was in the, the meeting and he pitched that the Enterprise went to the edge of the known universe. They're confronted by a brick wall, phased its way through it, and they were confronted by the face of God. And the executives on, in the room were far from impressed and said, yeah, but we need something big now. And <laughs> Ellison <laughs> gave them a two-word response and left the room. Does keep coming back. And I guess, and I'll start with you, Graham, is why does the theme of deity keep coming up in this franchise? I have no idea. It doesn't come up many places in the sort of hard science fiction that I love to read. It doesn't come up many times in that. I mean, Harlan Ellison was obviously taking the piss when he said that because he was probably bored in that meeting. No, but, no, no, no. Harlan Ellison didn't have a sense of humour. I can tell you <laughs> stories on that from personal experience uh, that happened to people I know. So, uh, no, no, there, there would be no humour. <laughs> So, no, they haven't touched on religion a lot because basically they had decent writers on the first, you know, series of Star Trek. And then certainly when they got into the next generation, they didn't tend to do that much and stuck to the science fiction. It's a science fiction show. Why do you need to go down the religious route? There's enough religious films and uh, TV shows for that. Yeah, God forbid they should do Dune, eh? which is all about religion. God uh, forbid, yes, okay. That's there him in, in there again. Yes. Yeah. Darren. I think it well it comes down to um to, to Roddenberry's uh, original um concepts for the uh, for the original show. Um Roddenberry himself was an atheist and, and also called himself a humanist. So it's it's funny actually because we keep mentioning Ralph Ellison. I I, I read in uh, a sort of Akinesi about him where he claimed that Roddenberry's only original idea he could ever come up with for stories was to have a, a godlike figure who turned out to be a fraud and, uh, and and was a child. That theme comes up quite a few times in um, uh, in the original series. There's an episode um, called uh, Who, Who Mourns for Adonis. There's an episode called The Apple. Oh, yeah. And, and those are basically always that, that, that any sort of deity is, is essentially um, a fraud. And that's Roddenberry's it, almost his critique on on religion in in doing that. In fact, there's also a um, another interesting episode called "A Piece of the Action." It, it's a really popular episode. It's one where they encounter this planet where their entire culture is based on Chicago gangsters. That's and, and, the one I'm thinking of. Thank yeah, you. That's yeah, one, yeah. And and, the, and what what the uh, what the twist is that we um, they find out that this um, society has built their whole culture. On a um, on a book that was left there by some uh, early um, human explorers, and it was the uh, the history of Chicago gangsters. So they found that one book, and then basically based everything about their their way of life on this book. And obviously, the parallels you can um, draw on that is that it's a um, it's a critique on the Bible, 
and how basically sort of you know of all the religious texts that were being made the bible was the one that sort of you know that people clung to so so again i want i don't know if you could call it an anti-religion thing but it's definitely a sort of a satire and a critique of religion that ran through the um through the original star trek um episodes and, and obviously incidentally roddenberry who by now had very little influence on the films at all apart from an advisor role and was actually sort of you know more in, in with uh, the next generation he absolutely hated and protested about this um this storyline in fact he actually tried to sue shatner because he felt that shatner had took some uh, uh, some concepts that he'd actually suggested to, to shatner at one point totally different story but so you know the idea of finding a sort of a, a figure trying to be god who was trapped on a planet and he felt that his idea was ripped off is it possible fascinating are we dreaming well can i just pose this in on this on this then that a slightly different ending they get to the planet they decide yeah we will take god off this planet so they're moving from the planet put him on the starship and off they go well that means they would have broken their prime directive and means they would have influenced the mind of god that's pretty <laughs> scary stuff guys um also wasn't the in the first um star trek by jj abrams wasn't the enterprise supposed to help a planet from um disintegrating or something and they show themselves and then they worship the enterprise the uh, the indigenous species then worship the enterprise don't they yes that's they do the, exactly. second, the, the second one they draw the picture of the enterprise on the that was on, it and that's yeah, and, but in, yeah but, and, and, but in, and in that kurt gets um gets court martialed because it's interfering in a um yeah. but yeah you're, you're right it, is, it does show the sort of you know how mm. how a religion could possibly just sort of latches onto something like that so yeah yeah your golfing prowess neil that mm. could spark a future society <laughs> right okay so final thing on religion before uh, we golf is a religion already jeff it doesn't yeah it? right okay as i said they they put a credit for god into the end credits and it deals with religion deals with meeting god and i don't remember at the time any backlash for it i mean i, I imagine if this film was made today the religious right in america would be up in arms and I don't remember anything at that time. Now, was it because it was Star Trek and it was passed off as science fiction fantasy? Or were we just living in a totally different time and people didn't care? I don't remember it coming out, to be honest. Um, but I imagine <laughs> there must have been something. You put God into IMDB and someone playing him. It's not Rife Richardson. You know, there must be some backlash. But no, I don't remember anything. Yeah, but even Time Ballots got around it by calling him Supreme Being. Supreme yeah. Being, that was it. They did, didn't they? Yeah, you could pass, you could sneak it in under that. Uh, what about you, Darren? I mean, I have had, I had a lot to see if, if there was any backlash, and I can't really find much of anything. You've got, you've got to say that this was back in the day, pre-internet, when um, discourse wasn't as easy to uh, to get out there. Yeah, I, I think nowadays there might be a sort of a bit of a backlash not just by um, hardcore Christians, but also by people who were sort of objected to when it was revealed what the ultimate faith was in the universe, that it turns out to be Christianity, you know, the sort of <laughs> the fact that, they, you know, they refer to God as a he and everything, uh, you, you know, so I would imagine, oh, yeah. that, you know, but I think the fact that this film was a failure, the fact that it was Star Trek, I think it's probably went under the radar of, of a lot of things. And the fact that 
the proves that at the end it's an alien pretending to be God as opposed to the God. Um, I think that would basically be an, an out of them. And anything that I've found, any sort of essays about this from a religi- religious perspective, have, have, have been quite sort of positive, to be honest. They've kind of used this film as a jumping on point to talk about faith in, in a um, in a sort of technological society and things. And, and, and maybe as well that last little, as corny as it is, that last little line where Shatner sort of says, um, maybe God's not out there, but he's in here sort of thing, as if it's it, it's a spiritual thing. It's not basically something that you're ever going to find, like the kingdom of God in our universe. It's a totally different thing. So may, maybe that gets it out of it. But yeah, I, I can imagine anything religious-based, if it was to come out today, there'd be probably a lot more discussion. I mean, there's, there's basically people freak out about any film, film that comes out these days. So, Well, let's go from religion over to humour. So they did try and bring the humour back from Star Trek 4. And what worked in Star Trek 4 just seems clunky and awful, sitting around campfires, Scotty walking into a wall in like some slapstick bloody movie. Mr. Scott, you're amazing. There's nothing amazing about it. I know this ship like the back of my hand. For me, it didn't work. But Darren, did it work for you? Not really. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the Scotty scene because I remember the very first clip they showed of um, of this film on one of the chat shows. It might have been Wogan or something like that. The scene they showed was Scotty walking in, into the wall. They obviously were trying to basically sort of, you know, say that this is like, you know, a fun film and there's going to be humour. But yeah, whereas in the first one, it had a reason for there to be comedy in there. It basically came up with a concept that lent itself to comedy. This was just throwing comedy for the sake of it into an action movie. And, and no, it doesn't work. I've got, I've got to admit that the campfire scene, I, I personally don't have any problem with it. It's very, it doesn't really offend me. And I think probably the, the, the best parts of this film are the three of them having a bit of banter between themselves. So, you know, but the, the actual, the, the comedy, you know, it's, it's out of place, but and it's not good. The one thing I will say is, I know this is very polarising, I, I do find the what does God want with a starship quite funny. Excuse me, I'd just like to ask a question. What does God need with a starship? Bring the ship closer. I said, what does God need with a starship? Jim, what are you doing? I'm asking you a question. Who is this creature? Who am I? Don't you know? Aren't you God? He. That one always <laughs> tickled me. So, so that little scene, I, I, I quite like. But generally speaking, it doesn't, yeah, the, the comedy falls flat. Yeah, it's interesting in the trailer that uh, the last moment of the trailer is Scotty walking into that wall. Yeah. So, yeah. And like it's the only that. funny bit in it. Yeah, but I do think that Darren's right. The funniest bit is that line, excuse me, what does God want with a starship? Yeah, and he puts his hand up like a kid at school. Excuse me, excuse me, can I ask yeah. the Supreme Being a question? question. Yeah. yeah. And as your hand's up, Graham, what do you think of the humour in Star Trek? I have to agree with Darren yet again. After the high of four, I thought that the, I could just couldn't understand why they hadn't got that rhythm again, and they all seemed to have lost it. So the 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 comedy moments and and the sort of interaction between the whole team just felt really flat. If you're going to do a, a full on action movie, you, have, you need those one line zingers, 
and all of the comedy was very laboured and very forced and culminated in Scotty walking into that beam. You know, just terrible, terrible. And the other thing was the interaction between the team is always very good and very interesting. And even in that scene when they're in the captain's ready room and Cyborg comes in, and they're working together. I don't even think that worked particularly well together. They seemed a bit distant from each other. They actually put them in the brig as well, and I thought, this is going to be really good, and it wasn't. The whole thing was just badly directed, badly scripted, and badly timed. Neil? It worked in four because it was a good film, and they added comedy into it. This one wasn't a good film. Um, So, yeah, you can't just have comedy in it. It doesn't work at all. So, um, worthy of discussion on its own, Nichelle Nichols, a lovely actress, but was approaching 60 when she had to do the nude fan dance. Question for you, Darren, was she actually nude? And and your thoughts on the whole scene? I have not uh, freeze-framed the, um, <laughs> the film to, to find them out. Oh, I, I would imagine that she's sort of got like some sort of like um, swimsuit or something on under there um i mean I've, I've got to say you know good honor for doing that you know she she, she obviously got a lot of sort of you know confidence and everything but the one thing that i've heard that she was annoyed about is that she because she's actually a you know a proper um, stage singer and she originally sang the uh, the song that she's singing and then they they overdubbed her with somebody else's voice and she, she was she was um, not pleased by that but I mean that that whole scene is creepy because it's like with 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 the guys running up the hill towards her. I mean, what's the connotation of of what are they running up there for? Apart from it being like really stupid and goofy. I mean, you would even even Star Wars at its worst would never have sort of Han Solo telling Princess Leia to go out in a gold bikini to distract a load of stormtroopers. You've got to bear in mind, though, you know, for three of us now looking at that character as she was then, she's younger than three of us. Yeah. So a bit of a pin-up um, for us. Only just younger than me, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> bit of a pin-up. What are you talking <laughs> So go on, Jeff. Carry on. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a totally embarrassing scene. Then I had the cheek to put that in the trailer as well, thinking what sort of audience, what pervy audience are you trying to attract to this film? Uh, <laughs> and I think part of this might be that she had, you know, I said that one of the things about Star Trek Four that did concern me, very little did, I'd like the film, but she didn't really have much of a character arc over the others had other things to do and maybe that was one way of making her up to her given her that fan dance, that bad move I would have said. Yes, yes Graham Yeah, I, I cannot believe that Michelle Nichols actually agreed to do that It is horrible I mean, what are these guys doing? They're all running up what to worship her? Or are we looking at sort of Star Trek's first gang rape scene. I mean, it's just horrible. <laughs> I think, I mean, and she, yeah, she didn't have a lot to do. A lot of the cast didn't have a lot to do. Uh, so they're just standing around sort of hoping the camera would fall on them. So let's talk <laughs> about other performances. Um, uh, Lawrence Luckenbill as Cyborg and David Warner as almost a cameo or barely a cameo. Your thoughts on them and other additions to the cast, uh, that's okay for you, Darren. David Warner doesn't get a, a lot to do, but he's it's worth noting that he actually appeared in Star Trek a couple more times. In the in the yeah. next film, uh, Star Trek Six, it'd be a Klingon, 
And then in, um, in the television, in the next generation, he'd later appear as a um, as a Cardassian. So, what? Sorry, as a Cardassian. What? That bloody family on the TV. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. very funny. Yeah. So, so, so he's, he's a he's a car he's a Cardassian, and a really good episode. It's actually a two part where he's like a, an interrogator that tortures Picard and tries to brainwash him. And it's, it's a really that's a really good performance and a ch- chilling performance in episode. But he doesn't get a, a lot to do. I, I mean, I, I will say the actor who plays Cyborg Lawrence Luckinbill, I actually think he does a good job. He, he has this some um, presence and aura about them that he believes in what he's doing. That he has this sense of all that he's trying to find God and everything. And he does have a charisma. Well, so one you know, one of the few good things in his film is I, I think he actually does do a, a good performance and i think he does have a bit of sort of like a presence and, and believability about them hmm yeah graham yeah I, I agree with that entirely i thought uh cyborg was actually quite good i did enjoy that i thought his performance was okay um i thought the rest were just the problem was the script didn't allow them any time to breathe or get into their characters now we all know the team but they didn't seem to expand upon this in any way, apart from revealing that Bach had a long-lost half-brother and that his father had had some sort of relationship with a Vulcan princess. God, dear, I can't even believe I've said that line. <laughs> Jeff, agree? Well, a couple of things, really. I mean, the first thing is, what what I find interesting is that, is that virtually nobody in the supporting cast registers. So if you look at the previous two films in three you had christopher lloyd as a klingon character makes a strong impression you've got john shook in four he's only in one scene but he makes a good impression can you remember anything about the klingons in this and the actors playing them it just doesn't register at all now Lawrence luckenbill i would agree with you he's a great actor and he's a great stage actor by all accounts as well and he tries with this but darren hit the point uh, who said that you don't see his visions so you don't see what's driving him you just see him sort of chatting to people and saying come and follow me i'll heal your pain more on that in a minute trust me i know what i'm doing yeah again like those evangelist preachers but if you could see his visions and see that he is misguided so it makes him a tragic character rather than sort of you know this almost off-the-cuff self-sacrifice he does at the end. Spoiler alert for those who haven't seen it. Don't if you haven't. I just think cheapens the character quite a bit. So there's a basis of a good performance. The only one that's supported on this that, that, that comes close to anything. Uh, and I think it's just not fully rounded. Outside of the main cast, not really. Anybody makes an impression. Uh, yeah, he kind of um, approaches three-dimensional character or two-dimensional character, and the rest of them are sort of barely one-dimensional, aren't they? They're sort of just pictures on a screen. I mean, um, the original cast themselves, you know, well, they're, yeah. they're sort of half-hearted because, let's face it, for most of a film, we're not even playing their characters. No, no, no. no. They're possessed, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. They only re- really get involved in the film when they're under the spell. Yeah. yeah. But at least they can toast a marshmallow. <laughs> or whatever he called it cyborg has his bizarre way in which he relieves people of their mental pain isn't that a psychiatrist and shouldn't he be charging by the hour is it simply new age 
God, how do we go with that? Graham, try and answer that one. <laughs> well, I just didn't get how he... Got, so you got him to face your worst time or your own mental pain, and suddenly you, became, you fell under his spell. It just didn't quite work for me, and I thought that was just lazy writing. The whole that thing I, was lazy writing, wasn't it, really? <laughs> or in, in... It was It was shockingly bad. The other thing that it, this terrible plot, device fell into for me is it just reinforced this strange notion that the odd numbered uh films in this franchise are terrible and this was number five and therefore it was terrible so but yeah to come back to your point i just couldn't get apart from uh dr mccoy turning into harold shipman as i said (laughs) (laughs) that the whole thing about face your worst no forget it i'll leave it at it's horrible. <laughs> uh, Darren, anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually say that this is probably, accidentally, probably one of the most interesting things in the film because him taking away people's pain, it's like, um, as Kirk points out, that he, Kirk, basically thrives on his pain. And it's, it's, it's this sort of concept of your life as a, as a person. It's not just the good experiences in your life that, um, that, that shape you. drive shape you. The bad ones as well that you, that you learn from, you know, having to, you know, any sort of trauma or grief of, of any kind, all sort of mistakes you've made in, in the life, they form who you are and sort of, you know, and drive, you know, you know how you, uh, you know, go in the, in the future. So I think that's, that's probably, it's a little heavy-handed and it's probably misguided in that thing where, like you say, you take away somebody's pain and then they become like a all-worshipping zombie. So it's, it's not handled well, but at least there's a question of something interesting. But the one thing I actually do find interesting about Cyborg, because and, and you, you mentioned New Age, the, the thing about it is, it, it to me, it, uh, and this is my experience of working in a, in a, in a bookshop, I, I've seen all these fads come along all these spiritual fads so everything from feng shui which was all about move furniture in your house and that will make you a, a more enlightened person <laughs> hey, hey, don't knock that darren i get use that on the wife all the time <laughs> oh, you get you keep getting moved about because yeah. of feng shui, or, feng shui. Or does she keep putting you in a wardrobe with that, that. Yeah. And, and stuff like you know all, you know and, and there's been years of there's been like kabbalah mindfulness cosmic notebooks the secret and, and i can tell you from from experience i found it interesting that the first person people that it goes to are like the vulnerable and the desperate and the, the lost and i see that myself a lot of people will get into these things will buy these books and like you know they're looking for easy answers and this is what Cybot goes. It comes up to him. It relieves them and it tries to relieve them of their pain. And then it's like an easy, it's not something that people are working to better themselves or working through. It's a one-touch cure that people are wanting for. And that's probably why these evangelists back in the 80s were so were so popular. Because and and what you know, we, we basically had like an easy one speech, give me all your money, now you're part of this wonderful um, community sort of thing pretty sure that they would never try to mention this but the, the thing that cyborg's whole creed is is to me reminds me of scientology yeah you know which is very much something which is um you know based in hollywood and everything so there is like some interesting little things that, that in, from shatner's original concept it's just 
does it really fit in with uh, a sci-fi action film and do they really sort of answer these questions or, or go into them enough or, or am I just really, really reading too much into and, and trying to give this <laughs> sort of worth? I, I don't know, but that, that is the thing when I was re-watching it, I thought to think that, well, yeah, I can see some parallels with, with cyborg and people 20th and 21st century New Age philosophies i can sort of i can see that that's that's one of the few interesting things that i actually got from the film but that requires a more detailed reading exactly understanding. and and this film just on all of those points just seems to be a pond skimmer doesn't it, it never really dives down into the deep points about this you as you said earlier on you don't get to see his visions you don't get to see his motivation you don't get to understand this hold he has on people so there's no nothing tangible that you can grip onto in this film so it just becomes a, a whole series of just little sound bites and it, it and the drove whole, me the whole and the whole thing about going on that point, the whole thing about God really doesn't get explored when no. he just announces I'm 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 here to find God you don't get any sort of like reaction from the crew about what if they're religious themselves or, or what what part God plays in the, the, the you know in the twenty first century or anything. Again, it's just the I found God is is over here, and I mean you just go with it. There's no sort of like exploration of anything really. Cyborg has let L. Ron Hubbard, Jeff. <laughs> Yeah, thank you, <laughs> thank you, Greg. Uh, thank you, Neil. Um, yeah, I got two things to say. Really, the first is I'd be really worried about Cyborg sort of relieving people of their mental pain by li- making them live through it. I watch whales play rugby many times. <laughs> <laughs> I do not want to go back to that. So sorry, <laughs> you're out. But the other thing about the Cyborg character is this: what guy who has this belief, he brings people along with him ultimately he lets them down because he's too lightweight to see it all through and he's misguided so if they were remaking it today cyborg could be played by jeremy corbyn oh, 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 oh. <laughs> oh dear oh lord thank you for that one so i want to go back to graham's comment about pond skimming yeah uh, it overall, is. I think that's, that's yeah that is fair because this does to me it seems rust hastily put together and without focus so Graham, as you come up with that wonderful comment, do you think that's a fair assessment? <laughs> yes, absolutely. It doesn't have, and I, and I know that the, the writer strike must have hit them hard. But the thing about, and even on this, makes me hurts me a bit to praise Roddenberry. At least he thought his concepts through and came up with a something that was interesting, something that had some depth to it, something that was believable and that you could pick up on. And this failed. Completely, and I'm sure Shatner has had, you know, oh, I've got these ten points I want to get out. Well, no, no, you can't just throw ten random points or interesting comments in and expect it to magically become a film. You've got to work at this, and you've got to get the actors on board, and you've got to build the whole thing around it. And it's, it's just a, I really dislike this film. I think it's a wasted opportunity, a waste of talent, and a complete and utter failure cinematically. Well, that sums that up. No sitting on the fence there. Darren? Yeah, I mean, I mean, basically what, what it came down to is that the, the studio had a, a deadline that they wanted to release this film for and they, they weren't going to budge from it. And even though the, the writer's strike affected it, even though ILM weren't available to do the special effects so they weren't prepared to wait for them, they got them like some really cheap um, uh, 
company to do them for them. And there was even a um, a, a Teamster strike that they, they had to deal with. Because apparently they were using non-union um, trucks. So they were, they, they were really worried that they, they had to get extra security because they thought that the, uh, the Teamsters might sort of sabotage them in, in protest. They were a bit scared that if they left this film any longer, that they would lose the momentum that they uh, they had with Star Trek Four, and what what turned out is they rushed this out there, and it was awful. And the ending it's, itself, originally Shatner had a an idea where they would have this uh, army of rock monsters to basically <laughs> to battle, and then the studio said, "You well, you you can't have an army. You can have one." <laughs> and there's, actually, there's actually test footage. We actually built um, a, a rock monster, a dinosaur, and and it looks dreadful so they had to they decided to ditch that and they went with the sort of whole um god like chasing shatner as this like sort of like you know globe of energy and and it's just like like it, it's it's all rushed you know that they had to they had to rush the, the script but you know the rewrites they had to rush the special effects and everything it's just you know everything was just sort of rushed just to try and um Capitalize on next generation, but also sort of you know you know not leave it too long. But Star Trek was going to fall out of favor, and and the the result was something that pretty much almost sank the entire uh, golden egg. Looks, looks entirely rushed, doesn't it? Even down to the uh, polystyrene henge at the end, um, with there's sort of very obviously polystyrene rocks coming out of the ground, which looked pathetic. Yeah, it looks uh, yeah really doesn't look like it's been taken anybody's taken any time over it we've given this film a, a fair battering uh, which it deserves it's not beat around the bush here but i want to look at a couple of aspects now of positivity and uh we'll start with the music as you know i'm a music aficionado particularly in films and jerry goldsmith's score his first time back since the motion picture i think is tremendous far better than the film deserves uh, what do you think of the music, Dan? I think it's one of the, the saving graces. I mean, the one thing that's been constant is the uh, the theme music. The, the film doesn't deserve some of that music. You know, they, when they're <laughs> sort of going off to meet like what they think is God, and the the actual score is, is at least gives it some sort of gravitas, some sort of like you know spirituality to it. So, you know, you can't fault the effort effort there. It's um, it, it's, it's it's far better than the film deserves, to be honest. And we will play out with some of that music at the end of the show. Neil, what are your thoughts on it? Um, yeah, I, I echo what Darren said. It's uh, it's good. It's yeah, it's Jerry Goldsmith. Really, the film doesn't deserve it. Yep, yeah, I agree. I'm going to take that quote. I love that quote. It's good. It's Jerry Goldsmith. Hmm. That's the best thing you said today, Neil. Thank <laughs> you very much. <laughs> Oh, can I say that as well then? You say, uh, um, yeah, I agree with Neil. I agree with Neil. Yeah, I agree with Jerry. Yeah, it's um, it's excellent. It really is good, and because of your prompting to listen more to the music, and at a few of the scenes, I actually had to rewind because I got lost in the music, and then I re- rewind, and then the dialogue was shit. And I thought, oh, for crying out loud, let's go back to the music. And yeah, in fact, if I could have the music track and turn off the uh, the dialogue, that would be perfect. But again, it had this thing where you could listen to the just the music and you'd know which scene you were in because it really is evocative of what's happening. 
and yeah, to go off on the to to go through the barrier and all of that stuff, you can say, oh yeah, that that's definitely a musical barrier they're trying to break through and that sort of. So it's great. That scoring sessions must have been awesome because oh, uh, God, poor people. Yeah, well, Shatner's ego and Jerry Goldsmith certainly had an ego <laughs> as well. So uh, there would have been some interesting moments there. But I'll stay with you, Graham. Is there anything positive, anything else you can say that's good about the film? No, not really. It, it's a massive letdown. It's a massive letdown. Yeah, okay, there were probably a few interesting concepts in there. Um, and I thought, oh, the campfire, this is going to be a real heartfelt moment. And then it just descends into that bloody song. And I thought, oh, get lost. Yeah, and that's your opening. There's no build up, and there's no, at no point did I get a, in this film to a point of no return where I'm fully invested in this. Here we go. You know, you never reach that point where you just go, you're in for the ride, and, and it just takes you. It just doesn't work. The opening doesn't work. The setup doesn't work. The story's terrible. All set to a beautiful piece of music. That's, that's it's a tragedy. Um, I liked it when um, when Kirk fell off that uh, very obviously fake rock at the beginning. <laughs> but then he got caught. Concentration is vital. You must be one with the rock. Spot, I appreciate your concern, but if you don't stop distracting me, I'm liable to be one with <laughs> Because it is there is not sufficient reason for climbing the mountain. I am hardly in a position to disagree. I don't think I can find anything else positive to say about it. It ended. That's, that, a, that's a huge cliff. Why didn't his leg come out of his body when he had grabbed him by the leg? It would have yes, or, or slice in two, <laughs> or rip, rip his uh, rip his leg off. Yeah. So we talk about a film where they meet God, and you're talking about somebody falling off a bloody rock. <laughs> Uh, Karen, we struggle. I mean, um, I mean, I, I guess early on it is there's quite a few different action scenarios. I mean, you've got a siege, and then you've got a sort of a, a battle of wits with it with a Klingon shape. But do you know, there's, there's there's nothing really in there apart from what does God want with a star shape, and don't you know who I am? <laughs> that, that, that's, that's pretty much the only thing I can sort of you know. To take away from this maybe the one thing is that this is sort of an example of how not to rely totally on your on your laurels when it comes to having a, a big franchise property well i've got a couple of positive things to say i mean when i first saw it i said i was very disappointed when i came out but there was one scene at that time that really struck me and that's the scene with sidewalk trying to turn kirk and at that time i thought that was impressive i think less of it now than i did then but what I would say is, um, if you can give it a go, the director's cut is far more interesting. It's still not perfect. It still has flaws, but it's much better. And, and everything we said about this with its rush to get it out and all of these sort of things, they did get a chance to tinker with it and improve it a bit. So that, that's what I would say. But let's go on and talk about the release schedule, because this also, I think, was part of the problem that this film had i mean they were expecting big numbers they moved this up to a summer release 
two and three were summer releases and they've put this into a summer release now it opened in june in america opened in october with us but that summer of 89 which was a stunning summer for uh, movies you've got batman you've got ghostbusters 2 you've got a bond adventure which also had its own problems but that's another story an indiana jones film and of course where would Graham have gone first to see the Mel in Lethal Weapon 2? <sighs> and and compared to all that, this film just, you know, as it was substandard anyway, it just wasn't going to pull in the crowd. And as a result, they did not release another Star Trek film in the summer until Abraham's reboot. And mm. um, they avoided it and put it into the into the autumn winter season after that where they felt it would be much more fit in. What impact did that poor box office and that summer have on this film? Darren, I'll start with you. I mean, it's worth noting as well that Star Trek Forward did, you know, business. That that was a winter film as well. You know, so it just... Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, the original Star Trek was a winter film and, and you know, it did business. Uh, Four did business. Yeah, two and three were were summer ones. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I I think that the bad press about this film would have put people off. I mean, the the concept. The, I still keep going back. If you just mention the Enterprise crew meets God, and that that's your sort of byline, and and that's how it's described. No matter what the film's going to be like, that's going to put people off. And you see, you see the films it was up against. If you were to compare how this film looks now, those films look in the trailer. But, you know, those films, you know, there was no competition in, in what you were going, going to go see, e even with the great things that Star Trek Four had, had done. People, you know, people were going to see Ghostbusters. People were going to see Batman, which I think was a phenomenon that no one could have really predicted how big that was, you know, going to really be. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what the idea behind that schedule was. I guess maybe they had a, a rush of blood to the head and they thought, you know, we can, you know, Star Trek can match these. I, I I don't know. I mean, nowadays it's um, so we talk about the, the summer blockbusters, but to be honest, all, all year long now is just blockbusters. You know, that's been you know before it used to be at the start of the year you didn't used to get big movies, and now like January, February, and in, in any other sort of non-COVID time, you do you know you get your big releases. But I mean, Shatner himself said that when he sat at the premiere and watched the whole thing and saw people's reactions, he thought he'd killed Star Trek. This was a real sort of blow to his ego. So the reviews and everything and, and the sort of the, the, the tackiness of it, you know, they, they killed this film. See, today you get an orange guy going in and saying, no, it's the greatest hit of the summer. They've just fiddled the box office receipt so it looks bad. <laughs> it's a good point you, you bring up there. I mean, if you look at the 1989, that was uh, The Last Crusade, Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. Sean Connery, it's just a brilliant comic timing in that movie the comedy really works in that and okay license to kill is a bit clunky but i really I like that it was just the wrong film at the wrong time but uh, yeah uh, and of course the batman was a pop culture phenomenon it didn't stand a chance against those okay you know we've been pretty down on this film and i think with good reason but i just want to end on a positive note really and if there was one thing you could go back and change in this film to make it better, give it that missed opportunity, what would it be? Uh, Neil, I'll start with you. Missed opportunity to maybe replace the director and wait wait until the writer's strike had finished. Mm. 
I think that was pretty much the, the the main thing. They shouldn't have rushed it. Should have waited another year, maybe, and done it properly. Yeah, I'm sure uh, there was a. I'm sure there was a good film there, maybe. Okay, Graham writing. Yeah, again, uh, I I think story uh, it is so important. To get the story right. Yeah, get put a director in charge who knows what he's doing, and and pay the money and give it to uh, ILM. You know, let them do the special effects, even though there weren't very many special effects in it. The, the ones that were were shockingly bad. So, um, yeah, those three things, and maybe another three things being story, story, story. Okay, Darren. You know, I'm going to look at this in a different way, and I wouldn't change anything because what? Shatner was intent that he was going to direct a Star Trek movie. Okay, he he had he had his contract clause, he had his argument. So to me, Shatner's going to make a complete mess of a movie. Let it be this one because it's already a crap concept. It's already a, a bad script. Put all your rotten eggs in one basket and then just push that away. And that way, it's out of Shatner's system. He's hung himself by his own hubris. And that way, we've got a clean slate. But when we come to Star Trek Six, which is a really good concept with a really good story and a really good way to, to say goodbye to the uh, crew, because that is the perfect ending for me, for that for that particular you know, crew. But have all your awful stuff in this film, get it out of the way, push it to one side, because you can actually watch the Star Trek saga and just miss one, and you've not missed anything. You can just go from four to six. So, you know, for me, I won't actually change anything. I'd just sort of leave this how it is and then it, you've got basically you know you can have a fresh start to basically end on a good film with star trek six you've gone into complete dad mode there aren't you i'm not cross i'm just disappointed now you tidy this up and this is all your fault and i hope you learn a lesson from this it's worth it put all, put all the bad <laughs> yeah. stuff in one boat and row 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 it out <laughs> <laughs> throw in one extra question and mainly for you Darren on this something that triggered when I was watching this film again was Shatner constantly refers to dying alone and it's almost like it was foreshadowing his death in generations was that accidental or intentional I think that was accidental mm. um, I think that's maybe something that, that when they actually came to do his, his death they, you know because oh, maybe we can use that a, a, a little bit I, I mean I, I personally don't think that Shatner had any sort of intention of killing off Kirk at this point so, or thinking that far ahead. So again, that's a little thing that they throw in there just to try and give some sort of depth to to, to the yeah. character. Because in the previous films, you had Kirk wrestling with his own mortality and his own sort of age and stuff. And I think this, this might have been just a little clumsy thing to put in there. And again, that doesn't really pay off that much. And it's something that doesn't really mean anything. So I don't think we were planning ahead in... in in any way at all i think it was just sort of you know something that they brought back when they came off to killing kirk okay well that's fine and we'll talk more about that when we get to generations so that's our take on star trek the final frontier as it turns out thankfully it wasn't the final frontier and the old crew returned for one last fling in star trek the undiscovered country Right, that's about it. And before we go, Neil, remove that triple from your shoulder, whatever that is. 